This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You're listening to episode 141. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwired.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. So last week, we announced our next virtual event, which will be the SNN Network Australia virtual event happening November 9th and 10th, 2020. This week, I'm really stoked to announce our lineup of speakers for the event. Joining us for the Australia virtual event are at the Gladiator HC on Twitter, Tony Hansen, Matt Joss, Michael Liu, Connor Haley, Claire Aitchison, Gavin Went, Mark Tobin, Rick Revelins, and Tolga Kumova. All our speakers either focus specifically in Australia and the ASX or some exposure to the space. But everyone mentioned here will be providing incredible insights on the opportunities that Australia has to offer. So be sure to join us at the SNN Network Australia virtual event, November 9th and 10th, 2020. For more information, please visit australia.snn.network and click register now. I look forward to seeing you all there. Another great week of pods. That is brought to you by the SNN Podcast Network. Uh, first up on Avoiding the Crowd with Maj Dunn, we had just finished participating at the Microcap Club Leadership Summit. And in this episode, we give our quick takes on the event, as well as Maj's COVID-19 risk assessment on geo-investing longs. Check out this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at avoidingthecrowd.podbean.com. On the next episode of In the Market Trenches with Gary Reby and Eric Fure, our hosts just recently made an investment in a spinoff. That experience and their love of Joel Greenblatt's You Can Be a Stock Market Genius inspired them to discuss their criteria for good and bad investment in a spinoff. You can hear this episode on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or Podbean at inthemarkettrenches.podbean.com. And the Investors Roundtable is back this week. Be sure to tune in this Friday to see who will be joining us on the roundtable. You know, you never know who might be joining us, but the topic this week will be, are AGMs dead or vital for differential insights? So tune in this Friday to hear what our panelists have to say about that. Subscribe to the SNN Network YouTube channel to be notified, youtube.com slash SNNWire. And I promise that audio-only version is coming soon. So stay tuned for that. Now, for this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Sham Gad. He is the chairman and CEO of Paragon Technologies, Inc., a publicly traded company. The symbol is 
PGNT in the US. He's managing partner of GAD Partner Funds and author of The Business of Value Investing. I actually met Sham at one of our events where he was doing a presentation of Paragon. And we chatted a couple times before, but we had been planning on catching up a, a bit more once the event was over. But a cool story though, and, and something that you only see when you're actually at some of these events in person, is that uh, Tobias Carlisle was giving a keynote at the event. And I was right there where when he saw Sham and they caught up. You know, little did I know that Sham actually wrote a few uh, guest articles in 2010 on Greenbacked. And, uh, you know, after the event, I, I went and read his articles, uh, learned a little bit more about his philosophy with Paragon. And I really have been trying to get him on the podcast ever since. So this episode has actually been a few years in the making. And I'm really excited that Sham took the time to share his insights with all of us today. So thank you again for tuning in to episode 141 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Sham Gad. Welcome back, everybody, to the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and joining me right now is a very special guest, a gentleman by the name of Sham Gad. He is the chairman and CEO of Paragon Technologies, publicly traded company, the symbol is PGNT, and he's the managing partner of Gad Partners Funds and the author of The Business of Value Investing. Sham, thank you for joining me today. How you doing, man? I'm doing great, Robert. Thanks for having us. Glad we could find a time to sit and speak together. Yeah, we were we were we were persistent. You know, we Absolutely. we kept after it, and uh, I'm glad we were able to make this happen. So, so I, I want to start off. You know, it, it's a pretty funny story how we even kind of came in contact with each other. You know, you came in uh, Paragon presented at one of our events a couple of years right. ago. You know, and back at the time when you know you were doing some more of your blogging back in like the 2010s. I was still in a mode of trying to figure out whether I wanted to go surf or eat a burrito or do both at the same time. You know, so I remember Toby, Tobias Carlisle, he was a keynote speaker. He happened to see you at the event and it was like, uh, what are you doing here? No, what are you doing here? It brought back memories. It brought back memories of the whole value investing group that we all used to kind of connect with online and through blogs. It was a good time. Yeah, it was awesome. Well, after that, I started doing all my research and, and I found the blogs from 2010 and, you know, when you were doing your updates uh, on Greenback at the time. And I was like, this is a small world. It was, it was really even before I understood like how small and yet con- and connected, you know, our, 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 our communities can be. So, you know, with that, before we get to, to that point in your career, which we definitely will cover because it's, it's too, too cool, the, the connections there. You know, let's get your background. Where, where did your passion for investing begin? Yeah, so, you know, as with most people find their passions, mine came at a young age. You know, I was exploring, you know, like all most, you know, what I wanted to do with my life, my career, and stumbled upon, um, you know, a biography of Warren Buffett, you know, when I was a teenager, the one by Robert Hagstrom and you know, everyone that when they're younger, they all want to grow up and make money and, you know, do all the things we, we aspire to be. But the book jumped out at me. I realized I really had an inkling to what, you know, what he had done, this idea of the investing. And um, it just, you know, it, it just resonated, you know. And so to me, it felt like a light bulb went off. So that subsequently obviously led to more 
more readings and really just uh, confirmed for me, I think, what I really want to do with myself. So, you know, that was way back then. And then we'll skip, you know, a bunch of years, went through school, um, came back and did my MBA. And, you know, at that moment, I realized I wanted to really kind of branch on my own and start an investment fund. And, you know, with everything in life, there's a little bit of luck involved, right? So I actually launched GAD Partners Fund in October of 2007. So if you will go back and recall, the S&P topped like two weeks later. So luckily I was able to get it, get going. I had a couple of good partners and, um, you know, obviously with all the learning I had done, I had been, I had started the blog before and I'd done some various articles for the Motley Fool and other websites. So that gave me an audience, but uh, thankfully I had a couple of uh, folks that, you know, just gave me a chance and became first investors and sort of that's, that's what started it all. And I can tell you the, the best thing to do with, with anyone, any career advice, I just, just get your feet wet because that's always the hardest part. Once you can get that going, then I think it gets a little easier. So that's how it began. And, you know, GAD Partners Fund launched in a you know, very humble fashion. It was um, you know, the first office was the second room in my condo. And listen, I felt like I'd hung the moon. You know, most of my friends were graduating and moving on to wherever, getting these jobs. I was waking up and just walking across the hall and sitting down and doing exactly what I wanted to do. So it was good. The, the fun didn't last long because as you know, the market went, you know, and things, uh, things got a little difficult, but I'd established a very good framework of what I wanted my investors to expect from me, how I looked about managing money, um, you know, through some, you know, some of the mentors I've had and that served me well, you know, um, didn't have redemptions or any sort of the headaches or people calling and, so I began with that and, you know, that really led to finding a company, finding Paragon Technology. It actually became one of the most significant investments that GAD Partners Fund made. And, you know, the one thing I, you know, I probably disliked the most about investing is the actual marketing and raising of the money. You know, that, that just takes, it took so much time away from, you know, what I really wanted to do was just to, you know, find interesting things, you know, and obviously, you know, kind of piggybacking off the Buffett model, obviously having a, being able to take a company and letting you do that with it, obviously was the idea with Paragon. So that's, that's how it began. So Sham, real quick, you know, just, just to take a quick step back. I mean, yep. you know, before, before you, you went ahead and started the fund, you know, what, what inspired you then to, to write for the Motley Fool and start your blog? You know, how, how'd you get that inspiration to do that? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously when you, when you want to start investing i mean you know how do you begin right if you're going to go out and do it on your own in a field that's very competitive you're dealing with people's money and i think um you know one of the things i i learned from you know listening to buffett and some some friends i would made at the time was you know how do people how are you know people are always going to ask you what makes you different you know why why should i give you a chance versus everyone else and i think the best way i realized that could happen was to let people see, see my thoughts, my ideas in a very sort of unfiltered way where they could get online. And so when I started the blog, I really realized very shortly thereafter that I actually had a, had a niche, had a passion for writing about these things. And, you know, it was very easy for me to write about my thoughts, you know, not unlike an English essay, which I was terrible at when it came to this, <laughs> it was great. And so I started, you know, I would end up, you know, adding more and more to the blog. I actually was doing it while I was in school. And so it got attention from people, 
obviously, and it, it was really a transformative part because it was basically like this virtual, you know, resume, I should say, where people could find you, they would see it. And I think from there, I realized that, you know, I, you know, this might be fun to do with other, other venues. And so I think someone introduced me to the Motley Fool. And again, they asked me for a writing sample and I gave them one. And, you know, for the first year or two of my career, that really is how I paid the bills. I mean, it was great. I mean, I was working at home. They were paying me a decent wage and I, I got to run, run, run my fund. And I mean, it's best times ever. I mean, because everyone wants to sort of do what they want to do and be able to do it and to be able to do it in that way and really get started was great. And obviously it was the right time for me, right? Young, no responsibilities, the best time in your life to take that kind of risk. And I would encourage anyone, if you, you know, if you want to do something, yeah. do it, start sooner rather than later. Don't put it off because that's when you, you know, you're going to fail. And you need to fail before you succeed. So the blog really, it, you know, I put investment ideas out there. I gathered information from people seeing it really just, it, it attracted individuals. And so it led one thing to another and it just brought some attention. All right. So I'm going to try and jog your memory here. What would you say was the most read blog or article that you wrote at the time? That's a hard one. I really don't know. Um, <laughs> it, it's tough because they were just, you know, my blog wasn't specific. It was more, it was a more of a thoughtful blog versus I'm writing about ideas. I mean, every, it was important to put some theses of investments on there so people could see, you know, your thought process. But, you know, it might've been my, um, I mean, I'm, I'm fond of this. It might've been my write-up about my two-day visit with Warren Buffett back in 2007, uh, because I think that started sort of, it got a lot of attention, a lot of individuals, young kids, college kids wanted to know, well, how can I do this? And I think, you know, from that, just a lot of lessons were created, a lot of connections were made. So I would probably point to that one if you, you know, if you put a gun to my head and say, give me one. Oh, I'm going to put a gun to your head right now and tell us more about that experience. Cause you know, you know, you set me up, you know, I was going to follow up with a question. Like, yeah. what was that like? You know, that to me was, it was a dream, you know. So when I got into business school, I learned that, you know, um, Mr. Buffett would give an audience to business school students. Obviously, I had no idea what the protocol was. So I just wrote him a letter. I mean, I wrote the letter at the same time I applied basically for business school. I'm like, if I'm getting into business school, this is what's going to happen. So I wrote him a letter and, you know, sent it off. And a couple months later, I, I was sitting at school. It was like 9 p.m. I got an email from Omaha. It's from him. He was saying, thanks for your letter. Appreciate it. Would love to have you come up. And, you know, at the time it was like, bring some of your classmates. And so, you know, I took about 40 of my classmates with me. Um, the school was ecstatic because nothing like that ever happened before. And um, it was a great experience. And I know one of your questions sort of gets into one of your most transformative investor experiences. And that, that was it by far. Oh, well, here, let's ask it now. I mean, this, we're, we're on that train, so we might as well go there. Yeah. I mean, so so I tell think, us, like, what, what was you know, so transformative? I think, obviously, um, you know, for most people, and I'd say, you know, obviously, as time has gone by, Buffett's probably, you know, more recognized in some circles, but certainly less so in, in this age today. You know, it's the Elon Musk of the world, the Jeff Bezos. But, you know, but most people, when they know Buffett, they know it because he's this, been this phenomenal investor, probably the best investor of his time, right? What I discovered with him in spending time with him is the way he goes about living his life, which I think really, really goes hand in hand to his success. I think the reason he's been so successful is he, he has designed his life to sort of 
ensure that type of success, right? So instead of living in a place like New York, where it's just the financial capital of the world, he wanted to be in Omaha, where he could, he was just away from all the noise. He could think independently, think clearly, you know, his views on, on capitalism and, you know, why it is, it is the best system in the world. However, it does have its faults. And I think it's our responsibility, uh, you know, to use the benefits of it to give back to society, the value of love and integrity in what you do. And I think to me, that was really the, the piece I really got the most out of because in terms of him as an investor, he's written it all out. He's done it with his shareholder letters, but in terms of really being, you know, having that balance of your life, you know, being, you know, a good human being. And, and I think to me, that's, that's the biggest takeaway. And I think it set me on the right path. Did you get to ask him one question or something? Cause I remember, you know, your stories remind me of, uh, do you ever read the rebel allocator by Jake Taylor? I mean, it's very, very similar, uh, right? yeah. very similar experience where, you know, a group of kids went, I mean, it wasn't Buffett, but it was a Buffett like yeah. character getting to ask him questions. And, and then the, the main character got to write the memoir about him. But I mean, did you get to ask him any questions and, and what were some of the feedback? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, at the time, you know, as a young 20 year old, you know, I always, you know, Buffett used to always have this saying where, you know, if I was starting over again and I had a small amount of money, I could make 50% a year, you know? So I obviously asked that question and um, he gave me his answer, but really I think the question that always stood out to me was I just asked him, I said, what is, you know, you know, what is, what makes, what's the key to success? I mean, what, what, you know, how do you define success? You know, here's one of the most successful people in the world, right? I mean, and he looked at me, he's just like, make sure that, make sure the people and your kids, if you have, make sure they, they love you when you get older, you know, and there, there's a lot of value into that, right? I mean, and I, I you know, I'll, I'll never forget that answer. Just make sure that the people around you love you. And I think, you know, I think it's so true. I mean, I think, you know, at the end of the day, it's, we all nod and say about it, but I think, you know, you can have everything in the world, but if it's just, it's all superficial material, I think there's something missing there. So I thought that was, that was something that really, that really struck out to me from, from an individual who, by the way, obviously didn't, he was so focused on his business, right? When he was younger. I mean, I don't think that answer did not, didn't come from experience. I think it came from a lesson learned from him. You know, there, there are, there are stories that, you know, his yard in Omaha was the worst yard in the neighborhood because he didn't know how to work a lawnmower. There are stories that, you know, when he had children at the time, you know, they, he would literally walk past their bedrooms and they'd be crying. He'd just go right past it, completely oblivious because he was so focused on what he was doing. And so I think he's gone back and looked at that. So I thought that was a very, very, uh, it's the question that really stood out to me the most, I think. Well, you know, this is a perfect transition into, you know, where you're at, today or or where we left off with your own personal story where you know you had the fund and that kind of led to your founding of paragon technologies and then really it kind of launched this similar buffett like approach using paragon technologies as that vehicle so can you can you tell us a little bit about you know what that strategy and idea was when you found paragon and then said okay you know what i learned so much this is one of my idols i want to kind of bring that same approach here yeah you know, it's interesting. Paragon was actually, it was, it was that, that micro cap you, you dream to find, really. Um, and that's obviously when, you know, as I began, you know, my evolution as, a, as an investor has changed, right? But when you start and when you're starting off with smaller sums in most major funds, you want to look in places they're not looking or, or find. And so obviously I was, I was heavily looking at, you know, misunderstood opportunities, you know, smaller businesses, obviously, that we felt could scale up. 
Paragon was a uh, typical net net, which is basically means it was, it was worth more. When I looked at it, it was worth more dead than it was alive. It had, you know, at the time it had, you know, four or $5 million in cash on the balance sheet. And it's, it's the value of the company was a fraction of that. So, and there was no debt. And so when, when I looked at it, really, it was just an investment. It was, you know, we've had success with these opportunities before. It was, it was an easy layup, right? If, you know, it looked like management wasn't really squandering the resources. And we figured at the end of the day, you know, maybe they'll distribute the cash or, you know, the business will get sold and it'll get bought out or, you know, the, the market will recognize it. And, you know, it'll recognize it at least for a portion of its cash value. And so that was really how it began. And then it just, we watched it and watched it and nothing was happening. And obviously at that point, you know, we were pretty significant investors in it. And, you know, we decided to, you know, introduce ourselves to management at the time and let them know. And we did that. We went through the motions and, you know, came away with that. They really didn't, they didn't have, there was no plan. I mean, they weren't doing anything wrong, but they were at a point where they were just waiting for something to happen. And so we thought about, I thought about, you know, what the approach was and we waited some more and um, kept on, you know, investing in the business and then decided really, you know, we were, we would like to be a part of the, of the discussion of the decision-making process. And we eat our own cooking. I felt like we had a significant investment. We certainly did. Um, and so we, again, we reached out to the board and long story short, we went through the back and forth, had some discussions, some were, some were pleasant, some were not so pleasant, but they were all professional, all in good faith. And in the end, it, you know, it was, uh, you know, I was given a chance to join the board of the company at the time with another individual investor who I got to know that I didn't know before. And that's really how it began. I became a board member. Um, we worked constructively with the board to kind of help move it forward. And then, you know, I, was, I continued to be committed to it. They were, the, some of the board members wanted to retire as I mentioned just briefly, this existing investor that came alongside with me, he decided he wanted to go do something. This was a very, this, this investment was much smaller to him than it was to me. And so, you know, he knew sort of my vision and what I wanted to do with the company. And so we came to a, uh, an agreement that allowed me to purchase his, his block. And that um, really set the stage for me to become chairman of the company. And then once that happened, um, I began to sort of position the company and turn it into a holding company vehicle where I wanted to run the businesses, but I also wanted the flexibility of growing beyond that single business, you know, diversifying into other businesses, using it to invest in other securities, other businesses. And, and that's where it began. So, so where's the company currently at today? You know, what was that? I mean, I'm sure you've grown and learned a lot in the, I guess it's now been 10 years. Yeah, it's been uh it's definitely been the, the greatest education I could have had. And so it's, it's gone through a lot. I've learned a lot about myself as a person, as a leader, as a businessman. You know, obviously, as a chairman and see everything I'm going to tell you is, is, is public information. But at the time, it was, it was one company. It was our automation business, which is obviously what, you know, attracted me to it. I thought that was a, a solid business. And at the time, we brought in, you know, we spent the first, I guess, three or four years really you know, throwing options, throwing ideas. I went through several CEOs at the time, brought individuals on that had a lot of industry experience and learned very quickly that that experience means very little if you don't have the raw talent or the passion. So the first three or four years, you know, I was, you know, I was sort of a, um, a chairman sort of looking in, trying to put the right people in there, manage the culture, 
and sort of just being a good cheerleader and obviously just paying very close attention to the capital allocation. And it just kind of, you know, it had its ups and downs, really didn't get anywhere, you know. And But I was also, you know, making investments for Paragon's portfolio. I mean, it had a, a significant cash position and, you know, we wanted to sort of diversify what the business did. So we were making some investments in other businesses, most of the minority investments in the public markets. Um, we did find a distribution company that looked very interesting to us um, in electronics. So we ended up taking a big position in that. Um, it was a distressed situation. And so that was our first sort of tiptoe in into doing that. Um, so we did, we, we ended up getting a very substantial position and, um, you know, joined the board of that company and realized that it was a lot worse than what we had anticipated. It was, it, was, it really crystallized for me the value of integrity and in, in people, right? I mean, you can only see so much looking at, looking at financials and you really want to be able to rely on management. And that was, that was a very, a very trying experience for me because my mother at the time was going through breast cancer and I was, um, sorry, you know, that's okay. And it was, um, you know, and and the company was really, I mean, it, it took, you know, 10, 12 hour days, you know, and I remember days getting in there. Luckily the business was located about an hour from where I lived at the time, but would get up in the morning and, and drive out and, you know, stay two or three nights and rush back home to check on mom. And, you know, it was, um, you know, the first year or two, we were just basically shrinking the business, you know, shrinking the business. But at the same time, it had a very lucrative Latin American business, which we really was the gem of the, of the company, which is really what we were focusing on. Long story short, we had to, um, you know, essentially wind down the U.S. operations of that business, but we took over the, the Latin American business. So we actually ended up acquiring, acquiring all of it. In a, in a restructuring. And that really probably became sort of the, the second most, you know, significant sort of evolution in, in Paragon. And so, you know, to fast forward, you know, when we took over the company, it was, you know, a $10 million in sales business, automation, one subsidiary. Um, in 2019, we ended the year, I think, with close to 100 million in sales, two subsidiaries. We, we launched a third subsidiary. Um, that owns real estate in, in the Las Vegas market. And we still have our securities portfolio. So the goal now is, you know, to continue to strengthen the company, um, find other businesses run by people we like or, or, or things we understand to bring them under our portfolio, under, under Paragon. Um, we run them, you know, for forever. I mean, we're not, we're not looking to buy to sell, but we just want things we can understand and continue to grow and allow us to use the, um, any kind of additional resources from it to make investments or buy other businesses. And so now, you know, thankfully we're in a good place, but you know, we can never afford to be complacent. And so um, right. it's, it's, it's been good. It's I've learned a lot to come better on it. Certainly had my fair share of mistakes, but you got to have them to have the successes. So, so you know, there, I, I've interviewed, I've interviewed a number of companies and investors out there that like to say, yeah, no, we got the, we're building the, the mini Berkshire, you know, or sure. both public and private companies, yeah. you know, why is that so much harder than it sounds? Yeah, it's, I think, A, it's the, you know, there's only one Warren Buffett, obviously, um, without question. I think he was probably, a, you know, a, not probably, he was far more sophisticated and had, you know, had a, a, a depth of knowledge that I didn't even possess at his age. Um, I think, obviously, being in Omaha in the 50s, in the 60s, I mean, that was, that was the perfect launching pad in the United States. 
for being an investor, being a value investor. Um, and I think obviously the insurance business that he had and he understood. Um, and so, look, you know, I, I only reference Berkshire sort of, you know, because it gives people an analogy, but we're never going to be that. I mean, that's just, you know, there's only one Berkshire, there's only one Buffett. But what I can do is take the best lessons that I've learned from him and, and try to apply it and give Paragon my best. And what I think makes Paragon different is it's, 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 it's me now. It's, it's, my, it's my child. It's my canvas. Um, you know, I've, I've taken it from where it is with, with the wonderful support of a lot of wonderful people, but it's gotten it here. And so I want to, you know, I love what I do. I don't work a single day. I feel like, you know, I'm getting paid to have fun. And, you know, so my goal is it's really, to me, it's, it's my inner scorecard to do what I can with it. Right. It has nothing to do with, with anything sort of artificial that, I mean, it's, it, it defines me. And so it's really sort of my legacy and I want to, you know, I want to leave that in the best way I can. That is a perfect segue into really what our goal for today, which is to really provide our audience with your thoughts on an intelligent framework for successful investing really in any market, you know, and to tie this in with your investing philosophy, because as I said at the open here, that you're also the author of the business of value investing. So according to both your book and your philosophy, what would you say are the six essential elements to buying companies like Warren Buffett. This is both sure. just from a holding company and also just from an investing side. Yeah, I think- Hand, hand in uh, hand, really. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, you know, you gotta know, you gotta know what you're doing in anything you do. And I think that's, I think that's where most people get into traps, especially when it comes to matters of money, right? There's this assumption that people know more than they have. And so for me, it was about, you know, the framework. And so the, the premise of the book and the whole process is, is you have to sort of, you know, it, it's an evolution of steps. And when I thought about that, it, it occurred to me, and it, you know, this were, these were things I picked up, obviously, from my readings and the people I had been privileged to, to be around. But you first of all have to have a philosophy. I mean, you, you know, you have to know what, what you want to do and what you want, what you want to accomplish. I mean, what is, what is your investment approach? You know, a venture capitalist has a much different philosophy than a hedge fund manager who may have a much different philosophy, you know, than a pension fund manager. Now, you know, they all want to make money, but that's, that's not a philosophy. It's, it's what are you going to do to sort of tip the, tip the odds in your favor, right? Or at least make sure you're doing it with confidence and intelligence. So you have to have that philosophy. I mean, what is, you know, am I going to be, you know, am I going to invest in venture capital? And so, and to me, the philosophy is this, this concept of value investing, which I define I think much more broadly uh, than, than most value investors do. I think it's actually the way Buffett would define it and re the really successful value investors would. So that, that's the philosophy. It's that, you know, you know all aspects of investing, it's, it's the, it, you want to find value. I mean, it's not, there is no value in growth investing, or in my opinion, there, there are two sides of the same coin. Every time someone makes an investment, presumably it's because I think, it's going to be worth more than what I paid for it at some point in the future. And so that's the philosophy is, is our, our philosophy is that, you know, it's a value framework and that we want to buy things for less than what we think they're worth. So in having that philosophy, then the other, then the second element I like to say is, okay, then how are you going to find those opportunities? So you have to have an intelligent search strategy. You have to know where to look for ideas and how to find the most intelligent ideas and how to tune out all the noise. 
then after that, you have to have an ability to, to, to value the business. And there's many ways you can do that, you know, but you have to be able to, just like you would when you buy a house, you have to be able to look at it and say, okay, what do I think it's worth? And what am I willing to pay for it? And then from there, you, you have to be disciplined. If, you, if you've identified its value, you think something's worth, you have to be able to walk away and say no. Even in the most optimistic of time, you have to have that discipline to tell yourself, yes, I, this is a great, I mean, any, any business is, is a great business at one price, it's a fair business at another price, it's a terrible business at another price. And so price sort of dictates value received in the future. So you have to have that disciplined approach. And then obviously I think it's, you know, patience is critical. Then you have to be patient, right? You have to really understand that it's, it's, it's a long game. And I realize that's becoming harder and harder in these days of, of internet, but you have to realize that the power of compounding is really the, the success to making wealth. And then probably the hardest, and again, these are all our building blocks. The, the hardest part is then to be able to load up the truck at the maximum point of pessimism, right? When things are on sale, you have to have it. Look, this is not, you know, no, not everyone is going to get this because it's just where our minds aren't designed that way. I mean, I've certainly can look back at any investment failure I've made and I realized there's been a hitch or a flaw in, in one of these things because it's, you know, money is a very emotional, very emotional thing. And I think, you know, it's one thing to go to a grocery store, right? And if your favorite item is on sale, yeah, you're going to buy two or three of them. But to tell someone, hey, look, you know, this business is now worth 30% less than it was last week or a month ago, you know, buy more, you know, the mind is not used to sort of watching things decline. So I think that's the framework, you know, have a good philosophy, have a strategy, you know, have a valuation model, being able to, you know, complicated or simple, just be able to, to take a sheet of paper and tell yourself, I think it's worth this, this is what I'm willing to pay for it, you know, be disciplined, be patient, and then be aggressive when, when the opportunity calls for it. You know, it's funny. It's only in investing do you get that when you see something for a discount, you're like, wait, why is it for a discount? Versus when you're at the sure. grocery store, you see a 30% discount. You're yeah. like, I'll get that right now. Look, and I think it's, I think it's important. <laughs> you know, the, the market is, is generally right. I mean, it is. I mean, it's not, you know, it's most of the time it's, you know, the thousands of people that are making these decisions usually have a little bit more information that's generally right. But, you know, occasionally it's, you know, the emotional tendencies or the panic sort of get in the way. And that's where being able to sort of, um, you know, have your own sort of, you know, your own data and reasoning. Like, you know, one of my favorite quotes from, from Ben Graham, who most younger listeners will have no idea I'm talking about, but he wrote The Intelligent Investor, which is a really great book. I mean, he goes, you know, you know, the stock investors neither right or wrong because the market agrees with you. You're right or wrong because your data and reasoning is correct. And I think that's the key. I think that's why it's important to have a framework, right? Because you establish sort of this is why I'm approaching with this decision. And that will give you, you know, and that doesn't mean, you know, in the future, something can happen unexpected that that changes your framework, right? And that's okay to be able to have that and then say, you know what, this decision's not correct anymore, the thesis is wrong, I'm moving on. And that's also very intelligent. You're cutting your losses and you're moving on. And so, you know, the wonderful thing about investing is it's not a game of you don't have to bat a thousand to succeed. You just have to have more hits than strikeouts. And thankfully, there are no called pitches. So you can wait as long as you need to. That's right. By the way, I uh, just want to be clear, where exactly are you so that for our audience who's not watching this, 
uh, and listening maybe so little music in the background. Where, where are you? Uh, where are you at? I apologize that you could hear that and even realize I'm actually sitting, I'm, I'm on a business trip in Las Vegas at the moment. And so I wanted to get out and sit somewhere out, outdoors. So no, it's nice. It's all good. I apologize if it's loud in the background. It's not mine. Wait, hold on. What, what, what cabana? Where, and what hotel? Let, let's let's it, figure this it's out. It's in the building that we own, our uh, our investment subsidiary. We own um, we own property in the Waldorf Astoria in Las Vegas, and so it's figured it'd be a good place to have a good relaxing. The air's clean. The weather's great. So. So I apologize that it's a little loud. No, no, don't, don't worry about that. Look, the fact that you said it's at your property that's currently in the portfolio, that's even better, you know, but yeah. uh, <laughs> so, okay. So I want to dig into your approach a little bit because on your website at GAD, at GAD uh, Value Partners, oh my gosh, I'm GAD, at GAD Partners Funds mm-hmm. on the website, you know, you mentioned that your devalue approach is fairly different from the traditional value approach, uh, value investing school of thought. So I was just curious, you know, how is it different? Yeah. And so I think, um, like I said, I think it's misunderstood. I think a lot of, you know, value investors, they, they limit the definition of value to, to statistically cheap, obviously, which that's, that's true. I mean, that's, you know, when you're finding, you know, basically finding Paragon, an example was a statistically cheap example of a, you know, of a value investment, right? So you basically, you have a, you know, you basically have a dollar's worth of cash cash that you can buy for 50 cents. I mean, that's, that's plain vanilla. And I think a lot of up and coming value investors, that's what they want to focus on, right? Finding these things that are trading for a very low multiple of earnings or price to book value. And I think that's, that's fine. But I think where I think the, the, the most significant creator of value is growth. I mean, because that's what makes businesses more and more valuable, ultimately, is the ability to to grow their cash flow and their profits over time. I mean, private, if you're a private businessman, you buy a business and you want to sell it. I mean, you know, you want the business to grow when you find businesses like that and you hold on to them for a long time. I mean, that's, that's going to create the most tremendous value. And I would argue that a lot of investors probably are prevent themselves from, from getting into those opportunities because they feel like they're paying, they're paying more for it. But I would tell you that, you know, Buffett likes to say, I'd rather pay a fair price for a great business than a great price for a fair business. And that's absolutely correct. Um, you know, businesses with strong moats, you know, strong entrenched, you know, things like the visas and the MasterCards of the world, the apples of the world, you know, where, you know, traditional value investors, even Google, right, might look at these things as technology companies. I mean, those are those are, I mean, those are rare. Those are lifetime opportunity businesses to find, you know, but you're, 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 you can't expect to get those businesses at these bargain bin um, valuations that a lot of value investors want to find. But when you look back, you realize that the inherent value in, in companies like Google and Apple, it's, it's the ability to grow, you know, their profits and cash flows at strong levels for a long period of time because they have these amazing business models. And so, you know, you, you're even starting to see Berkshire do that now with the big investment they made in Apple. And so I think that's where it's misunderstood that, you know, if you're a value investor, it means like you can't, you can't invest in things that are growing fast that might be trading for, for multiples. That's not to say pay anything for any, any price. Of course, the dream scenario, right, would be to find a Google or an Amazon you know, trading at 15 times earnings, you know, but, but you're not, but, you know, 
I would rather pay more, but knowing, you know, I can look with in the future and say, look, I know what Apple is capable of doing versus sort of getting stuck in these value traps where, yeah, you, you pay a cheap multiple, but the business is fair. And so you just find yourself on this treadmill. So I just think it's, you know, a lot of value investors sort of, you know, they sort of, they say, they define it in such a limited way, they begin to believe it, right? The more and more you say something, it becomes truth. And that just prevents you from, from investing in these other opportunities that I think has been, has been limit, has, has limited some people. So I just think it's just misunderstood. As I said earlier, value and growth are two sides of the same coin. And growth is the most, it is the most, you know, significant and effective um, element of, of value over time, of, cre- of value creation over time. I mean, this actually lends perfectly into my next question because it just at a, at a macro scale or there's just been, so, I, I can't even quote just one article. I mean, Toby alone has a bunch of articles on, on acquires multiple right now, but really just articles and statistics out there that would argue that value investing is quote unquote dead, you know, or at the very least in a very massive nuclear winter. Yep. So can you make the argument as to why that's wrong and that eventually in your opinion, that value wins out over time? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's an easy argument because every, in, every, every investment is the act of seeking value. I mean, and I think that's, so I think when, when you hear that value investing is dead, I think they're, they're, that term is being defined as what I told you earlier. It's this idea that, you know, you're not looking at growing companies, you're looking at sort of, you know, companies that are trading at low multiples that, you know, have, you know, that maybe have a better balance sheet. And so, I mean, those things are all important, but I just think it's, when they say that it's looking at looking at value from what I think is a statistical sort of way of looking and not adding the qualitative aspect of a business. Right. Um, and you know, quality, you know, quality is a very, very important part of any business. And I think, as I said, you know, you, you can have a great investment, um, turn into a terrible investment based on price and you can have a mediocre company be a great investment based on price. And so, you know, I think if your idea is to, to, to invest to make money, I think then by default, you're looking to find value. So it, by that definition, it can't be dead. But if you're limiting yourself on a certain aspect and have a rigid definition of value, then then you are. I think that's what it means. I mean, price is what you pay, value is what you get, right? And so I think that's the whole idea. I mean, things like Netflix, Amazon, you know, you know Spotify, all these businesses that traditional value investors may may not they they would say they don't fall in the value camp well i would argue if if at a certain price those become incredible value opportunities what you can't do though is apply the same statistical or the same sort of framework to a company like apple that you would to maybe a company like exxon mobile or something i mean it's you, you can't do that right because it's two different business models so you have to be willing to evaluate it on the future. And if the future is, it looks brighter then that company's worth more today. And I think certain value investors aren't willing to do that. Right. I'm not going to pay 20 times for Apple when I can buy, you know, uh, you know, Exxon Mobil or Aetna or even Berkshire Hathaway at, you know, 11 times earnings, but then Apple can grow its profits at 35% for the next five or 10 years. And they can reinvest those profits and still, and still deliver that, and to me, that's right. that's a home run. That's so. I don't think it's dead. I think it's dead if you limit yourself to 
to sort of a very narrow broadband of what value investing, what some people think it is. I mean, is it, do you think it was kind of born out of this idea that everything's just so frothy right now? And, you know, I think everybody expected more of what we saw on March 16th, where, you know, every, what, you know, the Dow was under 20K. Yeah. And now you're starting to see quote unquote value buys, but it was mostly because these are good businesses that are now selling at 30 to 40% discounts of their 52 week highs. I mean, is that more or less why we're, we're, we're hearing this phrase kind of come back again? Of course. I mean, you know, if you look at the past, you know, decade, right, it's, it's, it's been the decade of, of Amazon. It's been the decade of Netflix. It's been the decade of Tesla, right? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it brings back sort of, I know um, this will, this will age me a little bit. I wasn't alive then, but, you know, if you study enough, you, know, you go back and think about the nifty 50, you know, which was a collection of stocks back in the sixties and seventies that, you know, in people's minds could do no wrong, you know, and names like Kodak, Polaroid, right? I mean, just, you know, people were throwing money at them because, you know, and at some point that, you know, the party will end, you know, no matter what business it will. Um, and I think the longer the party goes, I think you have the, that fear of missing out, that capitulation, right? Where the next guy gets in and then he still, he, the, he does well. So someone else sees him and they get in, they pile up. But then at some point, these, these folks aren't getting in based on an intelligent framework. They're just getting in out of fear of missing out and just trying to sort of, you know, hope, hoping that there'll be another guy behind them to pay them more for what they got. And then what happens in those cases for most people is that the minute, you know, you know the party ends, they don't have that, that framework or they don't have that analysis or data that they could rely on for the reason they made it, and then they bail out. You know, and so I think, you know, yeah, I mean, everything is like I said, I mean, starting point matters, you know, absolutely matters. I mean, if you start at the top, you know, and you're paying these things, I mean, the next 10 years probably won't be the same. And so I just think it's, you know, the emotions can get the best of people in the money management and investing business. Absolutely. So here's, this is one question I, I couldn't wait to ask you, because I think this is a really important thing, because there might not you know, I, I have a feeling one affects the other. So would you say running a, a public company, being a pub, public company CEO has made you a better investor or vice versa? Absolutely. Um, you know, Buffett has a quote, I'm a better investor because I'm a businessman. I'm a better investor. I'm a better businessman because I'm an investor without question, because I can tell you, I mean, running a business, running a struggling business, turning around the business, I mean, it, it gives you a way to look at look at companies that you don't get otherwise. Conversely, being an investor allows you to look at a wide variety of businesses, and it lets you learn, you know, follow successful businesses, follow, you know, understand sort of, you know, the keys to what makes things work, what make what doesn't make things work, and you know, so I absolutely agree. I think it's been an absolute advantage um, to see at to see it from both sides, right? Because I think I think the most the thing that I would say the vast majority of investors, especially small, forget is that whether you own one share of stock or 100% of a company, you're still an owner in the business. And I get it. It's, it's incredibly hard to think, you know, like a true owner if you own 100 shares of Apple where you realize, you know, it's, it's nothing in a trillion dollar company versus owning, you know, 100% of your own business. But 
you know, conceptually it's the same thing. You're still, you're putting money into a business. And to me, I think, you know, having that experience and that approach as a, as a businessman, as an investor really, really brings that point home, which is, you know, whether you own the whole company or own a portion of it, you know, approach it from the same business like manner. You're an owner of the business. And as an, as an owner of the business, you're not worried typically about what a company does quarter by quarter, right? I mean, you're looking at the future. Does it have the right pieces in place? Does it have the right people? Does it have the, the balance sheet, the ability to sort of have a strategic plan to kind of succeed in the future? And if it does, that will give you the confidence and staying power to sort of, you know, give, give businesses the time they need to really succeed and really deliver the type of returns that, that most people hope they can make. All right. So you, you already went through, uh, you answered my next question. In fact, you answered it twice. You gave a, the two things that impacted your career, the, the top two things. So I'm going to ask it a little differently. You know, do you, do you have a war story that you're like, man, that was brutal, but I learned a lot. You know, like what, what do you, do you have one of those that, that, uh, that, that you went through in your sure. career? Yeah, I have more than one. I think obviously than one, I've, I'm sure, I've, yeah. I've, I've had, you know, I've certainly, I've had a couple of investments that I've made for the fund that I was really relying on, um, you know, relying on others, like what they're holding. I mean, you know, investing is, it's, it's one of these, it's one of these endeavors. It's a field where being a copycat is not a bad thing. I mean, I, I talked to you earlier about having a, a good search strategy. So, I mean, where do you begin, right? If, if you're starting off and you're, you're, you know, you're playing in a field where you have professionals with tons of analysts and, you know, I mean, you know, you, you follow the smart, you, you know, you find the best investors and you see what they're buying, right? You see like, you know, if, you know, if Buffett or, you know, or whoever made this, you know, obviously, you know, he's, he's got a track record. It's, he's done, he's been successful. That's like a good screen. You know, if he's buying that, maybe I should look into it. And um, I've, I've made some quick decisions like that, you know, from successful investors where, oh, this is a company they get into, I've given it a good look and, you know, and they haven't done well. And, you know, I realized that, you know, what was my thesis in the majority of it was that this, this one was buying, this one was buying. And so, so that's, you know, but that's important because I think there's nothing wrong with, you know, finding successful investors and taking their ideas. And, but I think what I failed to do was really, you know, spend as much time on it as I should have. So that was a good lesson. The, you know, another, another very deep lesson was the, the first major acquisition for Paragon at the time obviously was, you know, was painful. I mean, I spent two or three years of my life trying to restructure, you know, a business that was, you know, a part of a business that really just was what it had inferior economics, right? I mean, the business model just, and I, you know, and it, I saw it coming, you know what I mean? And I've learned from that. And so, but I, I look back at that experience and I wouldn't take it back because it's given me such, you know, a level of experience now and sort of evaluating the next acquisition and next acquisition. But in the end, it's, it's turned out to actually be, to be good. It was not going to be great because we, you know, we've had to lose in one end to make it up, in, you know, when it's a different part of the business. But I think, you know, those, those two would probably stand out. Um, you know, there's a good, there's a good saying in, in business that, you know, the one, you know, the common thing about turnarounds is they hardly ever turn. Right. And so I think, you know, I think everyone sort of wants that they want to, they want to find that company that's doing bad and say, you know, what? I got my ideas. I think I'm going to, I'm going to fix it. But you realize 
you realize very quickly that there's a reason why they're distressed companies. And, you know, and so Mark Twain likes to say, tell me where I'm going to die. So I'll never go there. Yeah. You know, I don't really want to go down that right down that, that path of distress, but I do like to fix things. I think absolutely. I mean, I think if you can find, you know, if you can find fundamental, you know, good fundamental aspects of a business with, with mistakes that can be corrected, then I think those are good opportunities to find. All right. So we're, we're there, man. This has been incredible so far, uh, so far. I only have two questions left. It's been incredible. So, you know, uh, I'd love to get then what, what was, what's your advice for new investors sure. looking at the stock market? Yeah, I think, I think they investors need to have realistic expectations, right? I think you're, you're walking into um, a profession where you, the benchmark, the benchmark is already established for you. It's, it's the return of the stock market index, right? The S&P, right? You hear about that all the time. The S&P does this, right? 85%, you know, John Bogle, who was the founder of the Vanguard funds, the late John Bogle, right? has probably done more for the individual investor than, than, you know, anyone else. But 85% of professional money managers can't beat the market, right? So, you know, what I tell people now is that if you're going into investing, you would do it on your own. What are you trying to accomplish? Um, if you really want to to beat sort of par, right? If you want to use the golf analogy or bogey, I mean, your your par is the, the S and P, and have realistic expectations. I mean, know right away that you know, three quarters, more than three quarters of professionals fail to do it, right? And there's there's lots of nuances for that which I won't get into, but the reality is is that so un, understanding that, I mean, go into it with a with tremendous humility, right? And you know, and, and learn though. I mean, learn that, you know, you're probably not going to beat the market, but if your aspiration is to really do that, then the only way you're going to accomplish that is that you have to be different. You cannot, you cannot beat the benchmark if you're going to behave like the benchmark. It's it just, it's not, it, you can't do that. And so that's why if, if you can't beat the S&P index, that's why Buffett says, you know, invest in the S&P and then go out and do whatever you like. So have realistic expectations. And if you're going to really, you know, want to make a career of investing, then you have to find what you're going to do to be different than the market. And I would say that is, you know, find what you're good at, find a focus, you know, train yourself and really, you know, devote a lot of attention to that and just bring a different approach to it. You know, am I going to, if, if you're, if you're starting with small sums of money, you actually have an advantage. You can look at micro caps, for example, which is what you guys try to try to help people do look at these smaller opportunities where the big institutional money can't can't find it right um so just have those realistic expectation um you know if you want to succeed and beat the score then you can you know if you, you can do it by doing nothing which is invest the s p but if you want to outperform then you have to select investments that'll do that over time you have to buy assets for less than what they're worth um and that, and that can come in various ways, right? I mean, like I said, I mean, that you can find things like, like Apple or the Googles of the world where you just, where you know you have these strong business models um, and you can ride them or you can find micro craps. But I think you just need to have realistic expectations and, and try not to do anything that you don't understand, you know, because if you do, you're, you're the one-legged man in an ass-kicking contest, right? So I think it's important to just have realistic expectations and, you know, we're here in Vegas, so I'll, I'll end it with a with a, a poker analogy, right? If you sit at a poker table and you don't know who the fish is in the first two minutes, then odds are you're the fish. So 
I would say that to most investors. No, find your edge, find what you're doing, have realistic expectations, and, uh, and you're well on your way. All right, dude. Sham, uh, this has been incredible. Like I said, you know, before we get to your website where everybody can find more information, uh, just quick disclosure, are you shareholder in any of the names that were mentioned today? You most, mostly mentioned the FANG Correct. stocks. No, thank you. No, we are not, we are not shareholders in Apple, Google, or Tesla, anything like that. Obviously, as a chairman, CEO of Paragon, that's my biggest investments. We have held those investments in the past, but currently we don't own those positions. Very good. All right. So with that, where can my audience go and find everything they need to know about you, Paragon, and GAD Partners Funds? Sure. Um, Paragon, you can go to our corporate website, uh, pgntgroup.com. And I would say, honestly, um, read the chairman's letter to shareholders. You know, I, every year I sit down, I write an annual letter um, that really talks about the business throughout the past year, my philosophy, where it's going. And so I think it's a really good way and I try to write it in a way where if you don't have an inkling of a business experience, you'll still understand sort of what we're trying to do. Um, GAD Partners Funds, you can go to gadfunds.com and read more. It is password protected because it's only open to accredited investors. But I think the Paragon uh, shareholder letters were really, it's, it's everything. I mean, it's my investment philosophies baked into that. And of course, if anyone's looking for the book, they can find it on amazon.com. Sham, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this with me today. And uh, I look forward to our next chat. This was a lot of fun. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate the work you're doing for, uh, for individuals. And best of luck to you. And sorry Thank about you. the music, but maybe it'll make it a more delightful podcast for people to listen to. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I just hope we don't get kicked off YouTube, you know, with our... <laughs> but Take I care, think we'll Robert. be all right. Take care. Good to see you. All the best. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Podcast.